We are in a whole new reality today. One we only saw glimmers of even last week when we were together. The unprecedented nature of a global pandemic that sends kids out of school for at least a month and creates Costco lines around the building two times over and has only just begun can make us feel like we're adrift at sea. No side of land. Of course we're unsure, afraid, and anxious. But at the same time, this is not truly the first time we've ever felt this way. In many of our lives, we've felt this when personal tragedies struck. In our families, we may have felt this, or our school or workplace. This is unique in its scope, but not in its essence. This is the unchartable water of grief. So rather than find all new words on the short notice that we had of just how rough the waters might become, I went back to a time I felt this same way, to a sermon I gave over seven years ago. And I'm going to offer it to us again here with the hope that it would point us to God. I was supposed to be 29 weeks pregnant. I was supposed to have just two months to go until my twin daughters were born. Instead, I was standing in front of a crowd of grief-stricken undergraduate students who had just lost a beloved staff member in a surprise medical incident. Just 10 weeks prior to that, when the students were on winter break and I was five months pregnant, I went into preterm labor. Yes, there are drugs that stop that process, but you can't have them that early. So I spent the night in the hospital waiting, hoping, praying my body would quit betraying me. I kept calling the pain cramps because I could not handle the idea that I was in labor, that those were contractions. At 8.49 a.m., Sunday, January 8, 2012, our daughter Kate was born. Her sister Lucy came at 9.47. They were just perfectly formed with 10 tiny fingers and 10 tiny toes and dinky little ears and lovely little noses. But they were born too early to survive. While first driving into the hospital, as I prayed, one of the things that came to mind was a line from scripture from a story in Daniel. If you've grown up in church circles, maybe you've heard it, but don't worry if you haven't. Israel is in exile in Babylon, and Nebuchadnezzar is king. He decides to build an idol of gigantic proportions for the people to worship. His mandate is clear. Music will play and knees will bow. You are going to bow down and worship this God that I have created. It's a demonstration of his power and of Babylon's power. It's a demonstration of the impotence of the God of Israel. If you don't bow down, you will die. So the worship begins and seems to be working until he gets word of three men who won't comply. There are three Israelites, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who know that their God doesn't take well to being pushed down the priority list. Yahweh is the God who says, you shall have none beside me. The king's command was straightforward. The instruments played and they stood. Now there's a furnace ready if they don't plan to change, but the king seems to be feeling gracious. And so he offers them a second chance saying, now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. 
But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? They replied, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And God will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if God does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Even if God does not. Driving down the 101 freeway that night, I thought, God can save us. But even if God does not. When grief washes over us, we hear the music enticing us to bow. I did. It plays and says, give up. Stay angry. Let your pain close you off to other people. No one knows your hurt. They don't understand. Shut them out. Shut it all out. Just bend the knee. Then and now, I'm choosing to stand. And I invite you to do the same, whatever your pain may be. I believe our God is good and that this world God made is lovely. I believe God is the God of play, of music, dancing, running, laughing. Even now, I believe God shows up at Disneyland, though maybe not right now. And the Dodgers game, hopefully later this season, (laughs) just as much as God shows up in church. All the delights of this life, friends and family, time and creation, bacon, there are gods, a reflection of God's goodness. I'm serious. In the two months after we lost the girls, we went to Disneyland. It was the right thing for us to do because we needed something that was just play, even during grief. And back then, we were in a bacon of the month club. It was heaven, pork heaven. And seriously, have we thought recently about the goodness of God demonstrated in our taste buds? God could have made us to subsist on tasteless nothings, calories without flavor. As much as anything else, I know God is good because there is bacon and cream cheese frosting and Diet Coke. I don't know what this looks like for you especially in light of all that has changed so quickly. But when you find good, joyful, happy, delightful things, do them more. They are gifts from a good God who delights in you and who is, even now, creating goodness in the world. And they aren't enjoyed from your knees, bowed to the idol of safety or security. There's a quote attributed to C.S. Lewis that has been going around a lot these days. A section of it says, as he reflected on the threat of atomic bomb so many years ago, the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts, not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. What might it look like to stand this week? People who know Jesus well will attest to the joy of life with him. They're not saying that things have not been hard. On the contrary, they know what it means to go through hard things with hope and peace. And so they can attest to life on the other side. When I'm in despair, I look to them. And I trust that joy and peace can come for me too. What I think they've found is a way to take their fears and anxiety to God, to really name them honestly in God's presence, to really talk them through with God 
in such a way that peace is no longer a platitude. It's real. It takes practice. It's a process. But the joy and peace of God become sweet gifts in the midst of hard times. They aren't artificial promises that it will all be okay. Peace is the confidence that even if it's not okay, God has not actually abandoned us. There's joy in this life. There's peace in the midst of hardship. And it's not to minimize or downplay the pain. It's also not escapist, not at all. It's just that life this side of heaven is and always has been and will be about the ashes with the beauty, the bitter with the sweet, and the broken with the whole. Our God can save us. But even if God does not, it does not mean God will not. It's just not yet. Because heaven is coming. Yes, but doubly so because heaven is breaking through. Even here. Even now. Amen.